Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. So Mark, it's, I mean, it's basically, you are the inspiration for this, just so you know. So, <laughs> so, I mean, so when I was talking with you last year, I think you gave an anecdote, which I would love to hear you give again, where you said that when you speak, you know, there's often two lines of faces, of crying lines. There's brown faces crying and there's white faces crying. And the brown faces are saying, I'm so glad, you know, I'm so glad you're saying this. And the white faces are all like, what do we do? We, we, we feel distressed. So what happened was, I've, I'm originally Canadian. I live down in uh, in England now, but I grew up in Alberta. I was speaking on my podcast, and it was and it was it happened to be Canada Day, and my guest, who is an Englishman, said, "Oh, congratulations!" And I was like, "I'm not proud of Canada. I'm not proud of this at all." Yeah. And I started to tell him a little bit. I said, "I because I was my mind was full of the um, the residential schools, yeah, the the bodies that were discovered in Saskatchewan, I think at the time." And I started to cry on the podcast, right? And I thought, oh boy, I'm having the white tears that Mark talked about. So the first thing I want to do is get you introducing yourself, any context that you want listeners to know about you. Yate, also Yate, Mark Charles Yinishia, Sin Bukay Diner Nishla, Dotor Huglini Bashachin, Sin Bukay Diner Dashache, Dotor Dotini Dashinella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We are matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Tsin Bekei Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toheglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Todachitni. That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now called Washington, D.C. I moved here with my family about seven years ago from the Navajo Nation. And these lands where I'm living now are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. The Piscataway, they're the nation that they were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here, raising their families here and burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. So I want to honor the Piscataway as the host people of the land where I now live. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Thank you, Mark Charles. It's my introduction that I give everywhere I go. Yes, in Navajo culture, um, whenever you introduce yourself, if you're ever talking to people who may not know you, you always give your full introduction. And then I always give the translation because if I just did, and then I also include the land acknowledgement everywhere that I speak as well. So my experience with white tears might be a little different than most other people's experiences with white tears. I 
I and, and uh, obviously you're having a whole discussion about the tears of white people, <laughs> but the way that I encounter it is as I've been speaking about the doctrine of discovery for the past 15 years or 20 years of my life, probably 15 years of my life, I have gotten very adept at kind of connecting the threads in through not only church history, but U.S. history and demonstrating how the doctrine of discovery lays out a very dehumanizing, even genocidal history um, with Native peoples. And that history is horrific. It points out things that most people don't understand, right? So the Declaration of Independence, which most people think includes everybody, 30 lines after the word all men are created equal, it refers to Natives as merciless Indian savages, right? We have presidents like Abraham Lincoln, who most Americans believe is one of our greatest presidents. Well, because the U.S. has never lost a war that matters, because we've never been had to surrender, we've never given up large tracts of land, we've never been disarmed, we've never have a, had a regime change, we've written our own history for 250 years. And when you write your own history, you leave out some very important and key facts about who you actually are. And so Abraham Lincoln, if you read chapters 9 and 10 of the book I co-authored, On Selling Truths, 9 and 10 are probably the two hardest chapters to read, you will learn in chapter 9 that Abraham Lincoln is a self-proclaimed, blatant, and unapologetic white supremacist. In chapter 10, you will learn that he is one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And so as I lay out these facts for people and things like, you know, we've, we've actually given out 21 Congressional Medals of Honor to white soldiers who participated in massacres of Native peoples. Now, 21 for the massacre at Wounded Knee, actually hundreds of them for throughout all of our history for the Indian War campaigns. And right, these things kind of churn people's stomachs and they, they show a side of U.S. history that rarely, if ever, gets discussed in our classrooms and that never comes up in public or polite conversation. And so as I was out giving these lectures and kind of showing people what our founding documents say and then what we've done because we have these very dehumanizing, racist, sexist, and white supremacist foundations, after my presentations, I would have two lines of people standing in front of me. And one line of people would be a people of color. And they were almost giddy, right? They were excited. They were like, I didn't know all those dates. I didn't know all those names, some of those policies I wasn't aware of. But I absolutely knew our history was that bad. Thank you for confirming it to me. Right? Even if they were kind of overwhelmed by it, they were, they were almost relieved to be like, yes, thank you for demonstrating that I'm not going crazy or I'm not, you know, a conspiracy theorist. These things actually happened. And then I would have a line of white people and they would stand in front of me and, and they look again, they're like deer in the headlights. I mean, their, their, their faces were, were like a ghost and they would look at me and they would just say, I had no idea the history was that bad. And then they would immediately follow that up with, tell me how to fix it, right? Where do I write the check? What do I sign? Where do I, you know, do something to make this all go away? As I saw that, 
presentation after presentation, month after month, and eventually year after year. And it wasn't just that, but I would actually get white people standing up in the middle of my lectures calling me a liar, right? I would get I would get these reactions that in an, any normal presentation wouldn't make sense, right? What What is going on? And I actually concluded it was about one half of 1% of my audience was going to be so triggered by what I said that they would stand up and call me a liar. And those people almost across the board would be white, Christian, male, either law enforcement or military veterans. And so when I was putting, and, and after my presentations, I would sit down and think about, okay, what did I, how did that go? Did I say what I wanted to say? How was my audience reacting? Because it's it's a lot of work to figure out how to lay out this history in a way that keeps your audience engaged. As my content got longer, and I got more more facts behind, you know, I, I just kept adding to my content. And as the, the details got more and more blunt and even gruesome, I noticed I was losing my audience, my white audience, right? By halfway through the lectures, they would be, they would be checking out, if not leaving, checking out mentally. And then I would have these lines afterwards and I would have some people calling me a liar and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And the tears, I would have the tears, right? People coming up and just weeping and wanting to apologize and wanting me to forgive them. And as I was seeing this over and over, I'm like, I shared with some of my colleagues, I said, I feel like I'm observing trauma in my white audiences but I don't have a place to put it. And I was really stumped because we really only have two paradigms that we can put white people in in regarding racial dialogue, which is one paradigm is white people are racist, right? So they're, they lack pigmentation in their skin, they're racist. And so every time that they react to something in a dialogue about race, well, this is driven by their racism, which isn't driven by their fear or their hate or whatever else. And so that meant I either had to be oppositional to them or defending myself. And it also meant they really had no place in the conversation, which those weren't helpful paradigms. And then the other paradigm is white people are fragile, right? I mean, after the lynching of George Floyd in 2020, uh, the book by Robin D'Angelo, D'Angelo, White Fragility, I mean, shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Everyone was talking about white fragility. And Robin has a lot of really good insights into what I would call the psyche of whiteness. But it was her paradigm of fragility that I wrestled with. And so... As someone who's dealt with trauma, both personally and in my own community, as I was kind of observing the reactions of of my white audiences, I said to one of my colleagues, I said, I think I'm observing trauma in my white audiences. But I had no category for it, right? When we talk about trauma, most people think immediately about PTSD post-traumatic stress or the post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an individual diagnosis for someone who has experienced a a horrific or a horrible event. Um, It usually comes from a single event. 
It affects you mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. It's kind of this all-encompassing condition, but it's an individual diagnosis, usually stemming from a single event. We have another trauma called a complex PTSD, which doesn't come from a single event. It comes from a, a series of events. So if you get PTSD from being assaulted, you get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. If you get PTSD from being in a battle, you get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. Psychologists have identified, they've observed that the symptoms of a complex PTSD can manifest in the children and grandchildren of the people who experience the trauma. They don't quite know how it gets there, but they've definitely observed it. Then there's a third trauma called HTR. HTR stands for historical trauma. It was first observed in native communities, and it's really how psychologists understand the dissatisfaction in a broader community. So both PTSD and complex PTSD are individual diagnoses for a single person. HTR happens at a communal level. And so you see it, it you, they've observed it first in native communities after our history with boarding schools and residential schools, after the removal and other things that took place in our communities. You could see the same HTR in black communities after histories of segregation, our Jim Crow laws, our mass incarceration, our enslavement. You could see it in, in the U.S., in Japanese American communities after our history with um, internment camps. You could see it in Jewish communities after the Holocaust. I refer to HTR, historical trauma, as the multi-generational and communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. And so understanding that, it helps me prepare for my audiences, right? So I know if I'm speaking to an audience of color, that there are many people in the room who are going to be suffering from PTSD, complex PTSD, and the community may very well be suffering from HTR. By being aware of that, I can frame my presentation and the ensuing dialogue in a way that doesn't trigger them or at least give space to have the responses, the traumatic responses. So as I was speaking to my white audiences and I would get these lines afterwards and I would see their responses that were really running the spectrum, I was saying, I feel like I'm observing trauma but I didn't have a place to put it. It wasn't a PTSD. It wasn't a complex PTSD. It wasn't an HTR. And I didn't know where else to go with it. And I actually, there was one other colleague I had who was fairly intrigued and he agreed to meet with me and we could kind of explore this together. So I actually flew out to his office and we spent about 24 hours together. We looked at research. We watched videos. We called other colleagues around the country and we were like trying to understand what I was observing. At the end of the day, my colleague said to me, he said, Mark, I um, was skeptical when you first arrived here that you were observing trauma in white people. But you've convinced me. You've convinced me that it's trauma. But I don't know where to put it. I don't know how to categorize it. I don't know how to, how to label it. And so at least I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, at least I'm not crazy, but I don't still know where to go with it. And that's when I found this book by Rachel McNair. This was a few months later, and Rachel McNair is a psychologist, and she was asking questions and looking at what she calls the psychology of killing. So the question she asked basically was, if society gives you the license to take a life, 
you're uh, in law enforcement, you're in the military, you're a drone pilot, you're in a certain aspect of the medical profession. If you have the right to make a life or death decision for somebody else, what does that do to you psychologically? And she concluded that it caused a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. That's the name of her book. She refers to this as PITS, P-I-T-S, so perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And she identifies that it's basically has all the symptoms that a PTSD has. The difference is PTSD afflicts the victims of a horrifying event, and PITS afflicts the perpetrator or the person who caused it. So literally, just by getting that, even before I read the entire book, just by reading the cover, I'm like, that's the piece I was looking for, right? That's it. So if I can, if I can, if I can make a connection between PTSD and historical trauma and see historical trauma as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, might not pits also have a multi-generational communal manifestation at a complex level? And that's what I'm observing in my white audiences is this level of trauma. And so once you start looking at the symptoms of trauma, right, the first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. And obviously, especially here in the United States, but a lot of white (laughs) nations, they're in denial of their history, right? Even with the death of Queen Elizabeth, right, just a few weeks ago in the UK, And yes, there was a lot of outpouring of love from white people all around the world, right? Because their reign, the reign of the crown extended globally. White people from all over the world were very sympathetic. Oh, she was a great woman. She was so nice and all these other things. Meanwhile, people of color from those same lands were like, why are we mourning this, right? This is someone who was oppressing our people. Maybe she was a nice person. But the crown she represented, I mean, even the jewels on her crown were gems stolen from our land. It's like, why are we spending so much time mourning this? And you could see the disconnect from white people. How could she was such a nice person, right? She was so, she reigned for 70 years, all this stuff. And they were clueless of like, how could you say these things about this woman? Did you not meet her? Did you not watch her interviews? And we're, at the meantime, saying, do you not know the history of the UK? Do you not know what they perpetrated around the globe? And so, yeah, there is this denial of the colonial history of not just white America, of white Europe, that caused incredible oppression around the globe. And so that first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. and so. Once I had the research by Rachel McNair, now I could make my hypothesis, right? Which is, okay, if PTSD has this multi-generational communal manifestation at a complex level called historical trauma, might not there be something similar for PITS? Now, I'm not an academic. I'm not a clinician. I'm out there trying to engage dialogue, right? I'm trying to teach this history, and I'm trying to find a way to keep white people in their seats, right? Because it, it's white people, it's tr- it's white people who are the ones calling me a liar during the middle of my lectures, crying and asking for forgiveness at the end of my lectures, coming up and saying, give me the solution, tell me how to fix it. And I'm trying to figure out how do I, how do I keep my white audiences in line? I'm like really trying to get through a lecture. 
And so I found that when I prepare for my white audiences as another group of traumatized people, if I treat them as traumatized, just like I treat communities of color, that they respond just as well. And so if I treat my white audiences as traumatized, I can keep them in their seats. If I prepare for them as another group of traumatized people, I can control more how they respond and when they respond and keep them from disrupting what I'm trying to say. Now, I have to be very clear with white people. You are not, white people are not victims of trauma. When most people hear trauma, they think of a victim. Again, this is a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. This doesn't come from how you've been victimized. This comes from what you've done, what you've perpetrated, or what you're standing on. And so I have to be very clear because I've had white people hear me say that you're experiencing trauma and they, oh, good, I thought I was a victim, right? You're, this is not my fault and this is, I'm, I'm a victim too. No, 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 no. <laughs> you are responding in a traumatic way, right? You're responding as any victim of trauma would respond, but this is a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And it's, it's coming from what you're perpetrating or what you're doing or even what you're standing on and, and receiving benefit from. And so I have to be very clear with my white audiences that they're not victims of trauma, but their responses are motivated by their being triggered by this trauma. This has been one of the most effective tools that I've developed over the past 15 years to keep white people in their seats. Not to keep them out of the dialogue, but to keep them from taking over or disrupting or co-opting the dialogue to fit their own agenda. This actually allows me to get through a lecture and then to give white people something to work on that doesn't require me to solve the problem for them. This is probably one of the most effective tools I've developed is understanding white people as another group of traumatized people. It explains their tears, it explains their anger, it explains their fear, it explains their denial, and explains their uncontrollable, chaotic, triggered reactions. As someone who has perpetuated that, in the, I remember meeting a, a, a native Canadian woman in the back of a church once and and uh she started telling me about her story and i just started to cry and i just thought and now afterwards i'm just thinking that was it i wasn't i was just exploding onto her really like she had then had to deal with my tears poor thing right i was in a lecture and this was this was it was primary to a white audience and there was there was a a young person sitting in the lecture near the front of the room and I was giving the history of the Doctrine of Discovery. And I could tell this material was impacting this person deeply. I could see kind of them shocked and in horror, horror of what I was explaining. But it was affecting them in a positive way, but it was affecting them very deeply. They were very distraught. I could see they were getting emotional at times. And then during the Q&A, they were one of the first people to shoot up their hand. And they didn't even quite know what they were going to say, but they just started, started kind of wandering around verbally, you know, and I, after about 30 seconds, I recognized this person's going to try to apologize to me. This person is going to ask me for their forgiveness, right? I'm at a Christian conference. They're going to publicly ask me to forgive them. And so I, I stopped this person. I said, excuse me, let me tell you what's going on for you. I said, you 
are an American person, you're a United States citizen, you have a highly individualized worldview, and you're hearing a history that you've never heard before. Because of your individualistic worldview, the weight of all of this history is bearing down on your shoulders. And the only thing you can think of right now is I have no idea how I'm going to go to sleep tonight. I feel like crap. And so you want to ask me for forgiveness. We're in a Christian conference. We're both Christians. So, of course, I have to forgive you. Now you'll be able to get on the plane after the conference tonight and go home and go to bed. And you can sleep soundly knowing that you heard this injustice. I'm not mad at you. Right. This is not an individual rift between us. This is about a systemic injustice that's benefiting you and hurting my people. And so I don't want your individual apology. I want change at a systemic level. And while you might be willing to apologize, I didn't say this this directly, you're not willing, most likely, to make the systemic changes needed to fix the problem. And so I actually pointed this person, I said, rather than apologizing, I would rather you enter into a space of lament. Lament is not repentance. Lament is not asking for forgiveness. Lament isn't even change. Lament is sitting in the brokenness and allowing the depth of the brokenness to bear itself upon you. Because until you understand how broken this thing is, you're not going to be motivated to change it. Lament, especially for people of faith, lament is the best entry point into this dialogue, especially for people. Well, it it works for both sides. People of color are better at lament than white people are. And churches of color are much better at lament than than white churches are. But uh, yeah, lament is a very good entry point because lament allows you to see the depth of the brokenness. And it, it doesn't offer solutions. It just allows you to see the depth of the brokenness, which can be very motivational to put in the hard work to fix the problem. On Selling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery is a book that I co-authored with a brilliant man and one of my best friends, uh, Sing Chun Ra. When we met, I was speaking about the Doctrine of Discovery and calling the church to lament, and he was actually writing a book called Prophetic Lament. And uh, we, so we both were using this, the, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of lament, and the better we got to know each other and the more we learned each other's message, the more we realized we should really write this book together. The purpose of the book It started out, actually, when we first wrote the proposal for the book, it started out as a call for the church to lament, an invitation for the church to understand its history and lament it. But we signed the contract for the book in 2015. And then the 2016 election in the United States happened a year later. And we hadn't even started writing it. We were still kind of formulating our thoughts. And after the 2016 election, and we were able to observe not only the the actions of people on the right, but the actions and responses of people on the left, 
we realized that the church didn't need an invitation to lament. It needed a very public rebuke. And so the thesis of the book changed from a call to lament to a public and open rebuke of the church. And so the book, it goes through how the Christian church got from the teachings of Jesus, who said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you, to a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery that says you can kill people who don't look like, sound like, act like, or worship like you do. And then we look at how that dehumanizing doctrine got embedded into the foundations of the world and how it's at play even today to perpetuate this injustice. Hi, uh, I'm Rachel, Rachel Clark. I am a deputy head teacher part-time. I'm a senior lecturer part-time and I deliver anti-racist training um, and professional learning for different schools and organisations around the UK. What I've experienced and what I've noticed is that tears have power, but to differing extents, depending on ethnic background um, and racialised communities. And I think the commonality between the the experience of somebody racialised as black in the UK or as African-American in America is all based upon the construction of race that began in the 17th century. And this idea of race being linked to power was was crucial and was key. So there's a commonality between how how people are listened to, how people are heard or not, whose voices are listened to or not, who's silenced and who's given that space to speak. So I think that there are commonalities there. I think it's important to really think about the UK context because as, as, as a country, we're very good at saying we're not America and we don't have these these terrible, horrific race relation um, situations and experiences and shared histories. Actually, that's not the case. The case is that we we have had real tumultuous experiences of of racial issues and problems across communities. And that is because of the racialization of people that has happened for centuries. What in your experience of of teaching or of anti-racism education, have you encountered white male tears? Somebody like me. I think my question about your tears would be, well, why were you, why were you crying? You know, what was were you crying because you felt bad? Um, were you crying on behalf of? Were you crying as as a defensive mechanism? You know, there are. I think you, you've got to go beneath what those tears are because there can be power behind it, and I think that that's not unless you're quite conscious and aware, you don't realise or you might not be used to being challenged or questioned about, you know. So I think I haven't really experienced that so much through tears in training. I have experienced defensiveness that looks very, is verbal, but there, there aren't any tears attached. I'm not saying that your tears weren't genuine, by the way. I'm just trying to get beneath the reason why they were tears. Tell me about the defensiveness. What? What are white men defending or how do they feel attacked when you talk about anti-racism? Either denial or we are not America. They're the, the, the main comebacks or 
you know, the Brit- British Empire was a good thing. And, and, and if you're white and American, you're not going to talk about empire. But in Britain, you, you, you often will. So that that context is really, really important. This idea of knowing better than or that can't be the case because we've got equal opportunities and everybody has the right. And that the lack of willingness initially to see beneath what the statistics are and what the laws say and hear the realities of people is really important. And again, it goes back to voice, doesn't it? It goes back to voice and power and who's listened to readily and who's not. And so very often my experience can be downplayed or, oh, but you're the exception. And so you find yourself having to speak over patriarchy as well as race. And, and that's where, you know, identities are intersectional and, and it's not, we're not just one thing, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're all complex. We all fit into many different boxes or none at all, depending on which way you look at it. But I, I think, it, think it's really important to to think about who who has a voice and who is listened to or who is just sort of like oh, going through the motions and I've got to show that I'm listening, but I'm not really. What does that look like? How can you tell the difference between somebody just ticking a box and letting you talk and you actually being listened to? What What is the difference? Because people ask questions back or not. People have done their own reading or not. People do not expect to be filled up with all of this knowledge because they, they, they sort of appreciate that actually it's everybody's responsibility. It's not just mine because I'm a black female who trains on this. It's everybody's job to do their own legwork. Yeah, those are sort of signs as to who's really interested in this and who's really interested and committed to make a difference and who is just ticking a box. What white tears can do is block the difficult conversation from continuing because we're all seemingly hardwired to respond in these ways where we have to stop and center your discomfort and not get through to what the issue actually is and and tears adds to this idea of being somebody needing to be saved or fragile or listened to and heard. do we go with I mean I'm, I'm just interested in your position of actually having to stand up in front of rooms and you've got the scenario would be you've got lots of white people who mean well right we we mean well and we want to do the work and you say do the legwork like, okay we do the legwork we bring you in Rachel you're going to be our teacher we're going to pay you and we're, you're going to educate us and then you get these emotional responses they're not the frustrated response of of an of a angry person who's trying to call the police on you right they're the frustrated response of somebody who's aware of this yawning chasm between what they w- wish they were like and what they actually are like. So how, what do you do with that? So I've learned, because I've had to learn, to handle those sorts of situations and, and almost remove my actual self from them. Because if you, because it's quite triggering, you know, like I've had different situations throughout forever where the the tears of a white female have meant that situations for me have had to change whether that be training to be a teacher and not going in and showing my vulnerability or my my oh actually I, I feel a little bit apprehensive about working there but knowing that a white person white female went in 
and cried and then things changed and I then had to be changed as a consequence. These situations are just, they've happened lots of times in lots of different ways outside of, outside of training to be a teacher or outside of, of leading within the teaching profession or tears have power. So what I've learned to do now is just ask if people need a little bit of time because, you know, it's not that people are inherently bad and, and people are necessarily conscious of of this weaponizing although I think there probably is a little bit of practice and consciousness around the derailing effect of crying but not necessarily the weaponizing part I've learned to, to say it, it's okay I, I can see you're upset happy to for you to take a, a moment that's okay and giving people that space but then coming back to it you know, and I think that's the crucial thing. It's it's been able to come back to this really difficult work and go against what all of us have been taught, which is when it when when behavior presents like that, just stop because obviously there needs to be a bit of help and we don't want to add any more distress, you know? And again, it's the centering, the centering of feeling, the centering of of behavior, the centering of thought, the centering of care, not necessarily the centering of my care. <laughs> and so it's it's learning to give people the space that they need but then carrying on tricky but it's necessary it's it's doable when and it happens and it's yeah it's it's good to then see the journey that people are on but I think sometimes people can underestimate the impact that that has because this work is not work that's that's devoid from who I am you know I'm talking about the construction of of identity that has been used in an oppressive way towards people I'm directly linked with, both who've come before, ancestors, but also present day. It's not academic, but I'm I'm talking about the reason why you're going to be scared of seeing my brother walk into a shop. I'm I'm talking about why my son, who's only two and a half, nearly three, how we're going to have to equip him to have positive interactions with the police, you know? And, and so it's real. It, it's not academic. It's not theory. It's, it's real life and it's real experience. And, and the more we're able to talk about this and the more we're able to sort of get past the tears and those sort of perceived vulnerabilities, not necessarily vulnerabilities, perceived vulnerabilities, the better off we're all going to be. Can you tell me a little bit more about this the difference between real vulnerability. Did you say it was perceived vulnerability and not and real vulnerability? Yeah. It's not that people are not ever vulnerable. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that our responses around tears are because of a perceived constructed vulnerability. And so our, our sort of like run towards, oh, we can't have this happen. What can we do to make it better? Naturally kicks in. And that's what we have to be really aware of if we're going to make a change. We can't allow that to stop us from asking difficult questions or questions for people to consider they haven't thought of before because their life experience has dictated them not needing to that's that's the perceived part for me is that it's not to discount anybody's vulnerability but we naturally run to that assumption of vulnerability if I cry nobody or very few people are jumping to that assumption and that conclusion Hey, we've got, I'm going to guess I've got a majority white audience. I don't know, but I'm going to guess. 
so you got a majority white audience listening to you right now. What what one what one question would you like them to ask themselves? You said they got to ask themselves a difficult question. What is one of those difficult questions you'd like them to ask themselves? What is one of those difficult questions? The value. I think the one of the questions would be: Are there differing values placed upon people that I ascribe? So do I place differing values on people depending on their racialized backgrounds? That's a really difficult question because our reflexes say no. Of course, not. of course not. I'm a I'm a good person. I'm a great human. I'm a Christian. This is not what we do. We're very open. We're very inclusive. And blah blah blah. So that's the initial response. The more probing question or or next food for thought bit would be: In what ways do you demonstrate that? Well, in what ways do I demonstrate that? You know, how do I reach out to people who are not from white backgrounds? Do I? Do I listen or do I talk over? Do I hear? Do I mute? Yeah, all of these sorts of things. Like, where am I getting my information from? What evidence do I have to hand? And who do I listen to? Who do I hear? And we can all say, oh, yeah, but maybe I don't have any black friends or I live in a predominantly white community or whatever it might be. My next question is, so what are you doing about that? (laughs) you know we've got social media now facebook pages twitter stuff you know there there are ways you can hear about people's lived experience without being friends with people or without having people with lived experience from racialized communities who are members of your family like there are ways within into these worlds now and so or books that that are are being read or listening to your podcast or whatever it might be so I, i think it's about people's commitment commitment to, to make a difference and make a change and the extent to which they're willing to do that and those honest converse questions over are you are you prepared to I think it would be a lot further on if people said well, actually I'm not <laughs> like, just be honest about it if you're not you're not we'll come back to it whenever but actually what we're swimming in is people thinking it's okay to say yeah but I'm non-racist that's well, not good enough actually and that means we're standing still and not making active you know changes and, and leaps forward I think that the last thing I, I'd, I'd like to say is in Britain, we've sort of been we've sort of been hoodwinked <laughs> into our ties and our the legacy of colonialism, I think is probably the fairest thing to say. I think it's OK to be scared. It's OK to ask questions. But what we have to realise is that we're seeing everything through that veil of colonialism, of empire and of imperialism. And and what we've got to do is if, if we're really committed to making a difference, we've got to be prepared to see these really difficult things and, and hear these hard messages and still want to move forward. I think Britain is very unique because of empire, because of because of our links to to African countries, to Caribbean countries, to Indian countries, to the world essentially. What we're not as honest about is what those links involved. And, and who was at the top of the food chain and who wasn't, and how that's been interwoven through every part of our society. I think we're slowly starting to have these conversations now, which is great. I, I think those conversations definitely need to happen in the church as well, for obvious reasons, especially if we're thinking about colonialism and, and what happened in the name of the church, not necessarily upholding Christian values, but in the name of the church, shall we say. I think there's a lot of work to do. Now, I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that, that people are asking themselves questions and, and moving forward. So, yeah, that's probably a bit longer than you thought or wanted, but apologies. 
my name is Galibe Amanaka. Originally, well, I was born in England. I grew up in Manchester in England. I was born to Nigerian parents, but I've been living in California and um, read in California for 11 years now. You've got, I, I'm guessing, I haven't done the numbers, but I'm going to get a wild stab that I have a majority white listening audience. What What would you say to them? If they were all crying right now, what would you want to say honestly to, to, the, to the crying white person? Oof. I suppose I would say... Uh, maybe, honestly, I would say just stop crying. I remember hearing of Cornel West being asked at an event once by a white member of the audience who, you know, who wasn't, who, who wasn't contradicting him or anything like that, just asking like, hey, I have white privilege. What am I supposed to do with it? And he said, deploy it. And then he moved on to the next question. But I would say that don't think your tears let you off the hook. In what ways are you participating actively or passively in this? In which ways, in which ways are you benefiting? I'd go on to say that just because you've born it, just because you've been born into a system that benefits you doesn't make you doesn't make you evil, but it doesn't it doesn't make you guiltless either if you if you choose to close your eyes to the ways in which you're benefiting from this and the ways in which your benefit come at the expense of someone else's dignity or whatever else. So yeah, long story short, stop crying, open your eyes, don't think that your tears have resolved you, get to work. Yeah, deploy your privilege. You have been listening to White Tears, a documentary audio series for the Tent Talks podcast. I'm Stephen Backhouse, and I give my thanks to Mark Charles, Rachel Clark, and Galibe Omanaka for appearing on this episode. Galibe also appeared on a previous episode, along with Terry Wildman, Shay Martins-Allen, John Goodfellow, Bradley Onishi, Sarah Moslener, and Lisa Sharon Harper. Much thanks to all of my guests for their time, their effort, and their honesty talking to us about white tears. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.